to Adjusted Reality, a podcast series brought to you by the Foundation for Chiropractic Progress, where we learn from athletes, celebrities, influencers, and healthcare professionals about how to optimize health in a fun, relatable way. Join me, Dr. Sherry McAllister, as I speak to Dr. Anna Lebke about the unseen forces driving the current opioid epidemic, how to protect yourself from potential gateways, the truth she uncovered while appearing in the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, and a glance at her upcoming book, Dopamine Nation. Dr. Anna Lebke is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine and chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Clinic. In 2016, she published Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Important and Hard to Stop, highlighted in the New York Times as one of the top five books to read to understand the opioid epidemic. Dr. Lebke recently appeared on the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, an unvarnished look at the impact of social media on our lives. Her forthcoming book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, exploring how to moderate compulsive overconsumption, including digital products. In a world where feeling good is the highest good. I can't tell you how excited I am to have Dr. Lepke with us. Welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, you took a very big leap. And you and I go back quite a few years now when the opioid epidemic wasn't called an epidemic yet. And yet we were both really looking at what are the answers? What is actually going on? And so I want to start out with first thanking you for being an inspiration for so many people out there to really understand the opioid epidemic. And I also want to ask you, what actually inspired you? to not only pursue the field that you're in, but why did you want to write the book, Drug Dealer MD? Drug Dealer MD really came out of my seeing more and more patients being harmed by the drugs that their doctors were prescribing to them. And my growing awareness that these weren't so-called pill mill doctors, doctors who had lost their moral compass, who were just exchanging prescriptions for cash, This was well-educated, well-intentioned, good doctors, my colleagues, my friends, um, honestly, in some cases, myself, who had become essentially um, a vehicle for people to become dependent and and addicted to controlled substances. So it was my own journey to try to understand what had happened to medicine, how how we had gone from um, a group of people who who chose this profession to help others uh, to a group of people who were inadvertently harming others. So that was, that was essentially what inspired the book. Um, Also, it was just my recognition that I wasn't probably going to get this type of information published in um, let's say a mainstream medical journal that it would have to really be in book form. And as we kind of dive into drug dealer MD, the title itself will make you pay attention because it is a, it's a, it's a very strong title. How did it 
get received when the book first came out? It's true. The The title is both um, sort of controversial and also honestly a little bit misleading because the subtitle is How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked and Why It's So Hard to Stop. And the book really is about that. It's, it's not about pill mill doctors per se. It's about how the average doctor got duped by essentially the opioid pharmaceutical industry into believing that opioids are effective for chronic pain and that patients won't get addicted as long as you're prescribing them for pain. That's the, the essence of the misleading messaging. Um, and, you know, the, the, the title, I've had some people who really love the title. I've had other folks who feel like it, the title didn't, what didn't really prepare them for what was inside the book, but you know, it, it is attention grabbing. I, so I think in that sense, it, what, it's been a very good title. I probably wouldn't change it. You know, I, I 100% agree with you. It is a title that catches our um, attention. It makes us think through how we do things with our health. It also, it's, it's important for them to, for, for medical doctors to see that in fact, they did get duped. Um, can you give us kind of an overview when you wrote the book? I'm sure as you wrote it, you were finding more and more and more pieces that went along with it, where it actually surprised you. When I was doing the research for our white paper, there was times where I just, I went from depressed to angry to almost inspired to get this information out. Can you give us a little bit of an overview on what you discovered as you were writing the book? Yeah, I think that's a really nice summary of the wave of emotions I experienced too. What shocked me the most in my research was the extent to which the opioid pharmaceutical um, industry had infiltrated medicine at every layer, the Joint Commission, the Federation of State Medical Boards, the FDA, the DEA, professional medical societies, patient advocacy organizations. They were pumping money into all of those different types of organizations. And it was coming out the other side looking like science, um, when in fact it was a lot of promotion. And I think that was that was what really disturbed me. I, I think you know, the Joint Commission in particular, um, when I realized that the Joint Commission was using materials it had acquired for free from Purdue and then charging hospitals for them so that those hospitals could meet quality pain standards, that, that was like a new low for me in my right my research. Um, and also really just looking at a lot of the published peer-reviewed journal articles and realizing, wow, you know, peer review is a way to try to ensure quality, but there's a lot of bad stuff that gets published. Poor methodology, um, studies that are sponsored by opioid pharma and have co-authors who work for opioid pharma, um, supplements, entire supplements to reputable journals that are essentially ads that look like peer-reviewed articles. So I think that it was that realization that, wow, you know, as a busy clinician, I'm really relying on these journal articles to tell me the real deal and then discovering that that's not necessarily what you get. You said something that I want our audience to hear is the real deal. Today, 
in our environment that we're in, it's hard to figure out fact from fiction. It's hard to rely on just opening something up and saying on social media and saying, is this accurate? Can I believe in this information? And I think you were at the forefront of honestly being open with the, with audiences to say, here's what we know, here's what we don't know. And more importantly, we have to have that, opportunity to create educational value, not, not propaganda, but value to our patients that come in and share with them the adverse events that can happen and share with them the, um, the risks for the future. And I would like to see more people picking up your book with a whole different perspective on healthcare in and of itself. And also recognizing addiction was one of the main focuses when prescribing opioids and that that in and of itself, as we know with Purdue Pharma was creating a misleading um, next step for our consumers as they thought, if the doctor prescribed it, I trust my doctor. My doctor was told, and that's what you're saying is, you know, there was a lot of misinformation that was going into the, um, the mainstream and addiction, whether it be on our social media platforms, or it's, it's a drug that we take. There's all sorts of ways to look at this. And that's why I think your opportunity now is to share with our listeners that there is other things going on that we need to be paying attention to. And you recently appeared on the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. Yes. I watched it and I, I was wowed by it. So for our listeners, do not miss this Netflix opportunity, The Social Dilemma. It's going to be an amazing eye opener for you. The impact of social media on our lives. Does social media have an impact on the opioid epidemic? You know, uh, that's an interesting question. Not one I've been asked before. Um, I mean, I guess one thing is, is important to, to talk about what social media is. And I don't think we've fully settled on the definition. A working definition is that social media is any, any, any way in which people exchange ideas, um, images, uh, thoughts online with each other. Um, and, you know, the, the smartphone emerged in about 2001 and became commonplace within 10 years of its emergence, such that the majority of individuals in the United States has a smartphone and use it regularly every day. If you look at the timing of the opioid epidemic, the real sea change in prescribing uh, began in the late 1990s with the release and promotion of OxyContin, and then accelerated between about 1999 and 2004, when there was a huge increase in opioid prescribing as a result of the messages along the lines of opioids are, are effective treatment for chronic pain, when in fact, there's no evidence to support, no reliable evidence to support their use long-term, more than three months. And this idea that somehow pain patients are magically immune from the addicting effects of opioids, which is also not true. Um, so once those messages took hold, again, prescribing really took off in the late 1990s. It continued to accelerate through 2012, quadrupling between 1999 and 2012. 
as it quadrupled, so too did opioid-related overdose deaths and opioid-related addiction. Um, and it's really striking to see those graphs that go up right. in, in that decade, followed in lockstep by um, increases in deaths, um, overdoses, and addiction. So in a funny kind of way, social media was being born at the same time that um, that the opioid epidemic was, was being more born. I don't know the answer to your question is my long-winded way of getting around to it. But if I had to guess, I would say that in some, in some ways, the social media may have accelerated awareness of the opioid problem. Um, you know, people at a grassroots level who were becoming addicted or had loved ones who were addicted and dying, realizing that they weren't alone, that this was a problem that had reached every corner of America, um, and kind of gaining strength and solidarity from that, that, that knowledge and that awareness. So I, I think, and I think this also raises another sort of important meta point that social media isn't all bad. Right? A, lot of, a lot of good things, a lot of awareness and connection, and really just giving voice to people who don't otherwise have voices is one of the, the, the upsides. So um, I don't know what the relationship is, but I think there's a possibility that it may have helped accelerate awareness about the harms. I, I very much agree with you. And having seen, especially, you know, it's, it's epically historic that people are now living through an epidemic and a pandemic at the same time. And when you look at addiction and you look at social isolation, um, it's, it's hard to separate them or is it a causation? Is it an association? These are some of the things that our listeners need to, to really recognize as well and, and have them also look at their own lives and where they fit in there. And one of that is addiction. And being in the role at one of the best known and well-respected institutions and knowing um, that social media can be addicting, how can our listeners today kind of protect themselves from social media addiction? See, since we can't, we can't say one, one gave rise to the other, but we can say the two are associated um, maybe not causative, but associated. What would you tell our listeners in order to protect their loved ones from social media that becomes addictive? Okay, so it sounds like you're specifically asking about when people get addicted to social media itself. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, I think the, the first thing to recognize is that social media is in fact a drug, just like alcohol or cannabis or opioids that it's been engineered to be highly reinforcing in many different ways, uh, bright lights, flashing colors, bottomless bowls, um, reinforcing um, enumeration. So by giving things a number that actually makes the, them intrinsically more reinforcing, um, the, the kinds of uh, ways in which um, it simulates connection and can create real life connection, but also um, can adulterate the experience of human connection, dr drugifying that experience as well. Um, so it's sort of like a, a fake version of connection that is more streamlined and feels better than the complexity of real life connections. So, so I think it's important to, to recognize that, that it is a drug. 
And in my forthcoming book, Dopamine Nation, I actually, it's very prescriptive, the book. I actually give very specific advice about um, how to manage the drugs like social media. And one of the first things that I recommend is a period of abstinence from the drug, just like I would for alcohol or nicotine or whatever it is. Even if the long-term goal is to re return to using the drug, it's really important to take a period away in order to restore um, what we call homeostasis or dopamine balance, restore reward pathways. And I talk about the neuroscience of that in my book. Um, and, and what that does is that allows people at, literally to regenerate um, their dopamine and to take pleasure in other things and to not be so fixated on this one single type of reward that ends up um, overshadowing everything else in their lives and causing problems, which they actually can't see until they've stepped away from it. So that's one of the big things about anything that's addictive is that when we're using it, it's very hard to see cause and effect. But if we take a break from it, we're able to look back and say, oh, wow, I was using in a way that's really not consistent with how I want to be spending my time or not consistent with my values. And, and, and when we recognize that, then I think we're more motivated to use it in a different way or to not use it at all if we're able to and want to continue to abstain. Most of the time, people you know have to go back to using their phones and have to go back to using various forms of online communication, which could broadly be categorized as social media. And so then the trick is to engage in self-binding strategies um, in order to control usage. And so I talk at length in my book about, you know, what are what some of those self-binding strategies might be, as well as some metacognitive strategies, which I think uh, are very helpful uh, for managing this type of compulsive overconsumption. Just to take a small step back, because this book sounds fantastic, and I know it's coming out at the end of August, and I want our listeners to, to really have a jump start. Dopamine Nation listeners, um, that's coming out at the end of August. Can you give our audience just a step back for just a moment and, and let them know what, what is dopamine? Can you give them why, why do I even care about dopamine? So dopamine is a neurotransmitter and it's uh, the neurotransmitter that is uh, deeply uh, intertwined with the experience of motivation, reward, and pleasure. Neurotransmitters are molecules that bridge the gap between neurons. So neurons um, are the main cell of the brain, the workhorse cell of the brain and neurons, um, they use electrical signals to fire and send electrical signals from one to the other. But Neurons really interestingly don't actually touch each other. There's a little gap between neurons called the synapse. And the way that a presynaptic neuron communicates with a postsynaptic neuron is by um, sending an electrical impulse from the presynaptic neuron that then causes the release of certain molecules called, called neurotransmitters that then bridge that gap between pre, pre and post and then bind to the postsynaptic neuron and then continue or abort the electrical impulse um, onward. So it's kind of like a checks and balances in the brain, a way to prevent a short circuit or, or an electrical storm, or just one more um, fine-tuned method of regulating uh, the neural circuits. So that, that's what that's what dopamine is. And and dopamine is is it's it's involved in a lot of different functions, including motor functions. So for example, people who have Parkinson's disease have lost um, their ability 
to release dopamine in uh, in a, one of the motor in some of the motor circuits. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we're when we talk about addiction, we're talking about the dopamine that's released in the brain's reward pathway. And that's a very specific circuit in the brain. Ah, here we go. This is, this is where we want to go. The reward system, which for many of us starting in kindergarten was driving us, right? It's the, it's the reward to what I am about to do. What are, what are the inputs back to me? What do I get out of it? It's a, it's not an altruistic system. The brain in and of itself is telling you, Hey, if you do this, I will give you that. So um, let's talk about that reward system in a nutshell. And as it relates to addiction, can you just kind of allow a deeper understanding of the reward system in how it works on a daily basis? Sure. So our brains have evolved over millions of years to approach pleasure and avoid pain. That's what's allowed us to survive in a world of scarcity. Um, And the way that the brain does that is that when we have a pleasurable experience, it releases dopamine and dopamine is the pleasure or reward neurotransmitter. Let's see, what can I tell you more about that to keep it in a condensed version? Um, As an example for, for, um, for our listeners, is there something that you would know this is a dopamine system that in an activities of daily living that you could say, okay, this is, this is what you'd see. Well, well, dopamine is released anytime we do anything that's pleasurable or positive or, or reinforcing. And dopamine, you know, we wouldn't we wouldn't be able to live without dopamine. And we all have a tonic baseline level of dopamine that's released constantly. When we do something pleasurable, there's an increase, a, a brief increase in the release of dopamine. Um, and the fundamental difference between behaviors or substances that are addictive and those that are not is that addictive behaviors release a lot more dopamine. Gotcha. That's, that's really good to know. I mean, I I think one of the pieces that for those that are sitting there thinking, you know, dopamine sounds really good. Why don't I want more? How come I, you know, what can I do to get more? Uh, I'd like, I'd like to um, enjoy my life and have the pleasantries, but there's, the negative side of a dopamine release. Right. Yeah. So, and that's the fundamental um, message in my book is that pleasure and pain work like a balance um, and that there's a cost for every pleasure. So when we do something that's reinforcing or pleasurable, our brain releases more dopamine um, that those are sort of the same thing, but immediately after that dopamine release, the brain adapts by downregulating our own dopamine receptors and our own dopamine transmission. And the way that I visualize this is that, um, again, it's like a teeter totter. And as soon as we have a pleasure, these little gremlins hop on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again, but they stay on there until the balance is tipped an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. And that's the hangover or the come down. And that's how our brains ultimately restore homeostasis or a level balance because the, the balance wants to remain level. So eventually after it's tipped to the side of pain for a while, the gremlins hop off and balance is restored. In other words, the overriding physiologic drive in the brain is to maintain a level balance. So with any deviation from neutrality, the, balance, the, the, the brain will compensate with what's called an opponent 
process reaction or an equal and opposite deviation in the other direction. So in other words, there's when it comes to your brain, there's no free lunch. If you have a pleasurable experience, there will be a price to pay. That is the come down. And if you repeat that pleasurable experience over and over again, ultimately what happens is that you, you enter a dopamine deficit state because in order to compensate for that continual release of high dopamine, your brain will re-regulate by, by, by decreasing the number of opioid receptors, down-regulating its own dopamine transmission. So essentially you induce a, what's like a depressive state in your brain in order to compensate for all this external stimulation, which means that when you stop using, you don't just go back to normal. You actually, your, your pleasure pain balance tilts to the side of pain and you experience irritability, anxiety, dysphoria. So, you know, what, when I'm talking, you know, to teenagers, for example, who say, but I love to play video games, it feels so good. I say, well, how do you feel right after you stop playing? And, you know, if they're being honest, what they'll say is, first of all, it's really hard to stop playing. And part of why it's hard is because you want to avoid the come down. Right. And then in that time afterwards, they usually feel a little anhedonic or without joy because They've been engaging in this really high reward activity. So of course, to compensate for that, the brain will put them into a dopamine deficit state afterwards. And, and this is the fundamental problem. I mean, because that dopamine deficit state is what drives us to reuse. Dr. Lepke, you know, there's very few people that have ever described it as eloquently as you just did. And what I'm saying, I actually thought I was being inarticulate, but (laughs) I I think it was fabulous because you have a takeaway here, which is, you know, the absence of pleasure is, it could be balance. And if you have a high level of pleasure, there's going to be an alternate adjusted reality for you, which is why my podcast exists is we need to actually be honest in how our brain works and how, in fact, pleasure can be short-term in the ill effects can be longer term. And not a lot of people know that. And that's why addiction is an, an important part. And you had noted something that from a chiropractic perspective has been long built into the philosophy, which is homeostasis, the balance of the body, whether it's a narrow musculoskeletal issue, balance is throughout our lives. It's the yin and the yang. It's the energy that keeps the world on task. And I think as we go through, when we talk about adjusted realities, it's really comes down to balance and being able to know when, how, and if one should engage in activities that will help them, especially when it comes to non-pharmacological. And I know you and I've had talks about that is how do we help patients past in chronic pain when we know what the evidence is for opioid addiction? So my last question for you, and this might be a little bit more difficult than getting right down into the deep science. If there was one thing when you look back that you wished was told to you, even before you rewrote Drug Dealer MD, and that you'd like your patients to really have a handle on, what would be that one or even two things that you would want everyone to know leaving today's Adjusted Reality podcast? Wow, that's a big question. I think that, I think that my main message is that the relentless pursuit of pleasure 
really does lead to pain. It's not, it's not a net neutral that when we live our lives constantly trying to please ourselves, to distract ourselves, to, to escape the reality of our lives, we, we just end up running and we, ever, we won't ever be able to run far or fast enough to avoid suffering. And that really uh, the, the secret is to stop running, to turn around, to face reality as it is, and to accept that you know, pain and suffering is a part of our lives. Um, and that there's solace in knowing we're not alone in that. Um, we're also not, not sick if we're um, struggling, you know, not necessarily sick. Um, especially when when I think about psychological suffering. Um, You know, I have a lot of patients who just think that they must be sick because they're sad and life is hard, but, you know, life is hard for everybody. Um, And so I think trying to get away from this this notion, which is really now deeply embedded in our culture, that if we're sad or struggling or um, anxious or whatever it is, that somehow there must be something wrong with us. Um, that, that I don't, that I think is, has, has not served us well. Um, and to instead acknowledge that life is hard and that we all suffer and, and that kind of embracing that is, is, a much, is a much stronger footing. And again, this is not like a new message, obviously, right? I mean, this is a message that's been around for centuries, but I do think we've, we've forgotten it or, or lost touch with it especially when we're living in an environment where, you know, fast, easy rewards are the essence of, of, of our modern lives, right? That, that everything is so easy and so readily available and, and so reinforcing and, and engineered to be reinforcing. It's, it's, you know, we've all become vulnerable to this kind of um, basically compulsive overconsumption that you could call addiction. That was brilliant. And I'll tell you why. It actually is the pursuit of happiness. And it's actually in the pursuit, whether or not we get happiness, that could be a whole different adjusted reality podcast. But you said so much. And for me, I would probably go back and listen to what you just said a couple of times, because you're right, there is a stigma to the thought of you know, if, if I'm not happy and I'm, I'm really struggling, I must, I must have something wrong with me. And, and that is a very powerful statement. What I want to say, Dr. Lebke is you are taking a forefront for so many people out there that need to hear this message. And we could not be more grateful to having you today to really have this outward ability to balance ourselves and recognize what balance looks like and how important it is to get the help that you need when you need it and recognize your own patterns and your own responsibility in that um, current help that you do get. There's nothing more than you have to take action. It is an action-based listener uh, endeavor that really makes a just reality so incredibly important. So I would like to sincerely thank you and also hopefully get a, um, an update when dopamine nation comes, um, comes out is having our listeners have you back if you'd be willing to do so and share more about this book. 
Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to. Thank well, you. we heard it here. She said she's coming back. So listeners, when that book comes out, please go ahead and get that book. And I want to thank you sincerely from all of us to having you today, because I know incredibly important this message is, as well as how busy you are to get a hold of. So thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I want to thank you for tuning in to today's Adjusted Reality, where we spoke to Dr. Anna Lebke about the correlation between the opioid epidemic and social media, the effect it has on consumers, and how to best protect yourself from potential hidden gateways. This podcast was brought to you by the Foundation for Chiropractic Progress. As a special gift for listening today, you can go to f the number four cp.org slash health to get a copy of our mind, body, spirit book, which focuses on many ways to optimize your health and the health of the ones that you love without the use of drugs or surgery. Don't forget to subscribe, share the podcast with family and friends, rate and review. If you're feeling inspired to learn more about chiropractic or find a doctor of chiropractic near you, visit f4cp.org slash find a doctor. We appreciate your support and look forward to checking in with you again soon.